Hey, I'm Allison Hare, and welcome to Little Left of Center, the podcast that interviews culture changers that are reshaping our world and breaking new ground. Could you imagine getting rid of all of your stuff and traveling around the world as a lifestyle? I think it's something we all can fantasize about, but what if we could expand our intentional living? Today's guest on Little Left of Center is Colin Wright. He is an author, international speaker, and four-time TED Talk speaker, podcaster, and he's a minimalist. But not just any kind of minimalist. He's been in a self-imposed exile, relocating to a new country about every four months. I don't know about you, but I've got some serious attachment to my stuff. So I was really interested to learn about what fills the space when you get rid of everything. Please enjoy. Yeah, well, thank you so much for for jumping on this. It's funny because I was watching that minimalism movie. Um, oh, and I'm yeah. in Atlanta. I'm in Atlanta. And uh, it was late at night. I was watching it with my husband and I rolled over, grabbed my phone, found you on Instagram. I'm like, I've got to talk to this guy. <laughs> this is uh, such a crazy lifestyle. So um, so we'll get started. But I am with Colin Wright of Ex Life in Exile or Life Exile Lifestyle. Which Exile one? Lifestyle. Exile Lifestyle. And uh, I, I am so excited to talk to you. And it was funny because I was thinking about as I was looking you up and like the questions just kept coming and coming and coming. So <laughs> I'll try my best to, um, to uh, keep your time efficient. I appreciate you taking a few minutes with me. And um, my pleasure. yeah, as I mentioned, uh, my podcast is called Little Left of Center. It is not a political podcast, but I interview culture changers and I was really kind of struck by um, by this documentary of what it means to not only minimize your lifestyle, but I think what I came away with it is as you get rid of stuff, you actually leave room for a lot more expansion in other places. So mm-hmm. if you wouldn't mind, you are an author, you're an entrepreneur, you are a podcaster as well, and you hop around from country to country to country. And I, I love that you got that you use the terms in this documentary of I'm kind of homeless. So <laughs> yeah, can yeah. You, can you back up and tell me a little bit about your story? Yeah. So back in 2009, a decade ago, if you can believe it, I was living in Los Angeles and I was running a branding studio and things were going really well. This was like reaching near the apex of some goals that I'd set a very long time ago in my life in terms of entrepreneurship and wanting to do this type of design and this type of kind of philosophical uh, big picture work with different companies. And I realized at a certain point that although I was successful ostensibly according to certain metrics. According to the metrics that I was telling myself were actually important, I was failing epically. I just, my health was diminishing, my relationships were suffering. I didn't have any time to do much of anything outside of work. I never got any sleep. My diet was terrible. Uh, And and the work I was doing too, although it was challenging and satisfying to a certain degree, it was also not stuff that I particularly cared about. It was good money with impressive companies, but it wasn't anything that I would point at now and say, look at this thing that I did. I'm so proud of that. There, there wasn't anything that I was proud of beyond the, the kind of insular world of here is a career and professional stuff that I'm doing. It was all like LinkedIn impressive. It wasn't necessarily yeah. lifestyle impressive. It wasn't anything that was fulfilling beyond the paycheck. But how do you get the balls to get out of that lifestyle, which is what we're <laughs> all in, you know? 
It, it was looking at things from a slightly different angle. I had the opportunity, fortunately, on my 24th birthday to step outside of that world, literally and figuratively. I left LA for my birthday, uh, the first vacation of my adult life after running <laughs> businesses for five years. And I was able to look back in on my life there from that distance. And I, and I realized from that big picture, God's eye view, that wow, this is not really taking me in the direction that I want to go. And what's more, the, the mentors that I was fortunate to have, these people that I looked up to who had taught me all kinds of wonderful things, I didn't want their life either. Like They, they were living lives that were very um, money-focused. They were incredibly wealthy. They were incredibly successful according to very specific metrics. But I didn't want to be them. They, they were very unhappy people. And to each their own, everybody has different priorities. But for me, I was telling myself that I was headed toward one thing, but once I was able to look at my life from that distance, I realized I was pursuing something entirely different. And from that perspective, then it becomes a little bit easier to imagine, uh, maybe I should step away from this thing that is good according to certain metrics of success, but not necessarily good for what I want to accomplish. Do you think you would have had that courage if you weren't so young at the time, you know? It, it certainly helps feeling like you're young enough to make a lot of mistakes and bounce back from them. That there's a certain privilege in, in that. There's certain privileges, you know, in having speaking English, being young, white, male, straight, yeah. like having a U.S. passport. There's a whole lot of things like that that made it a whole lot easier for me than it would have been for a lot of other people. Uh, and and being in a position where I was too, where I realized I was heading in a certain direction, and I I saw myself a couple years down the line unable to extract myself from it. Because at a certain point, you get so caught up in a certain lifestyle, you become dependent on a certain income, uh, that that was part of it too. It was a somewhat privileged position to look at that and say, yeah. I know that I'm headed in a direction that will lock me into this forever. And that makes it a little bit easier to walk in a different direction. Ugh, I could not imagine. And so you started this journey that you have a blog. And so you'd have your readers choose where you were going to live every four months or so, whatever country, and you would do it and you would go and write about it. And, you know, did you speak the language? You know, like, how did you, how did you move around? Or is it the privilege of being, you know, speaking English and speaking a, a common language? Yeah, I mean, English, it certainly helps speaking English. If you can speak English, then that is the language in a lot of places of the internet, of business. Um, that, that makes things a lot easier. A, a lot easier in some regards, that is. It's easier in terms of functioning because yeah. people all over the world are trying to learn English and are happy to practice it and speak a bit of fundamental English because of the spread of pop culture, that, that yeah. soft power that's been spread around the world with English. Um, at the same time, it sucks in a way, though, too, if you're trying to learn other languages, because everybody wants to practice their English. And you're like, no, no, please, my, my Italian is terrible. Please help me here. Let's speak Italian a little bit. Um, but, but there's trade-offs for everything. It's certainly an advantage in a lot of ways to have a certain passport, to speak a certain language, to spend a certain currency. There are certain currencies that spend much better overseas. Whereas if you're spending like an Argentine peso, it's a little bit more difficult because you're, the value of that diminishes when you travel elsewhere. So it, it'll be different for everybody. And I came from a relatively privileged position in that regard as well, which made it easier. But with every single country I've been to, and still to today, uh, coming to here in Ostia in Italy, where I'm at right now, it's uh, a learning experience and it's incredibly humbling. And if you can go in recognizing that every single person around you, every small little child knows more about what's happening than you do, then you stand a decent chance of picking up at least something useful. 
Oh, that's so amazing. And one of the things, you know, my husband always says that he knows if I'm feeling like crap about myself, if there are like a lot of boxes and Amazon keeps coming to the door, you know, and he's right about that. And I, I, what I was struck by with the minimalism movie and with your journey and with the journey of your friends as well that had created the movie or had been featured in the movie is, 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 is Americans, or at least in particular, my uh, attachment or Americans need for attachment of things, you know, and I, I have people in my family that are kind of hoarders. So I do get rid of a lot of stuff. So I'm kind of very cognizant about that, but you know, you had whittled everything you own down to something that could fit in a travel bag. And that sounds like such an amazing freeing space. <laughs> You know, and you've been at this for 10 years. And I wonder, because you have a Midwestern background, right? You grew up in the Midwest. Uh, yes. Um, and I wonder, you know, a, a lot of times, let's say somebody finds Jesus for the first time and they get really, really into it. And their parents are like, <laughs> oh, this is a great phase. Will you come back? You know, is your family like that? I mean, are, are they are they hoping this is a, a phase or is this like the most unbelievable thing? You know, what is, what is it? How... How are you perceived in society from your family, from the insular place of where you are? And I, how I, does that, try, how do you try that on? Uh, I think it helped. I, I'm not super, I'm not a proselytizer about it. I think that there's yeah. as many different ways to do minimalism as there are people. I, I don't think that everybody needs to adopt the way that I do it. I think that most people should own more things than I do. It's all about your priorities. <laughs> how there's many no things right, do you have? How many things I, do you have? I actually stopped counting because I found when I posted lists, at first I thought it would be interesting just to show people here's, yeah. I'm surviving on this and thriving. I don't notice the difference. Like I, I saw I that on your website. I thought that was I, really cool. I, well, and, and for me too, and it was helpful for me to even recognize here's some stuff that I've got, here's the things I'm swapping out. But then I realized that people were taking it as like a challenge. Like I need to own mm. less and like you're morally superior if you own fewer things, which is absolutely not the case. I don't want people to think they have to own a certain number of things. You're not better if you own fewer things. It's all down to your priorities. And for me, my priorities being traveling around and having the freedom to move around as I want to, to, to do different things and learn different things in that way, being ultra mobile. My priority is owning very few things so I don't have to literally carry it on my back. Now, for most people, that would not make any sense. And most people will need other accoutrements in their life because they've got other things that they want to do. For me, I'm a writer. I'm a podcaster. What I do for a living can fit in my bag. If you're a snowboarder, if you are somebody who practices equestrian arts, like you're going to need right. other stuff. And that's totally okay. Um, coming, coming at it from that angle, though, I found that as long as you're not super pressury or dogmatic about it and telling people how to be and that they have to do things the way that you do, it's usually pretty easy. People are a little bit like, whoa, that's interesting. That's okay. This is my new strange friend. Uh, my parents were like, okay, well, that's an interesting direction to go. Not the weirdest thing you've done, Colin, but that's an interesting direction <laughs> to go. But then over time, I find people see what it's allowed me to do. And it really is, it, the minimalism is not the thing. It's what it allows you to get to. Minimalism is just a means of freeing up time, energy, and resources to spend on the more important things. So, so tell me, me more about what is more important to you. For me, having the liberty of movement, being able to invest myself in projects and work that may not make me any money, 
to be able to throw myself into things like that because I love doing these things. Uh, the ability to spend my time with the people I want to be around, to spend all day reading if I want to, just for the love mm. of reading, uh, to wander around aimlessly and to learn about places, to be able to go to foreign countries and, and live in a city and just walk down the street and make friends, build relationships that are not predicated on the exchange of money. Like These are the types of things that I always wanted and that I'm able to do because I streamlined uh, my needs, my the budgetary constraints that I had before. I, I live on far less money than I lived on when I was in LA because I am able to spend my time more appropriately doing things that I actually care about. And I think when people see that, when people see the consequences of what it allows you to do, they're more likely to say, oh, okay, so that's what you were talking about. It's not about the constraints. It's not, it's not a religion or a culture trying yeah. to adopt me into. Uh, it's just about focusing, you know, spending your money more intentionally, spending your time more intentionally, that kind of thing. So let's pause for a second on the relationship part. So, so if you get rid of stuff, you have your freed up, your mobile, you have the ability to to explore and kind of immerse yourself in different cultures. And I'm and and forgive me because I'm coming out of a, as a construct of 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 what I know. So I'm like, please please challenge me on this. <laughs> you know, like as you meet people that you're probably, it's kind of like catch me if you can, you're not going to be there for very long. So how do you nurture <laughs> relationships when you can't physically be with them? Or do you find that the technology really helps with that? It, it definitely requires living like I do anyway, yeah. requires a recalibration of your expectations with relationships. It's not something where at least except for periods of time in any particular mm. place, you're not going to have all your friends in the same town. You're not going to be able to have a birthday party where all of your friends come over because your friends are all over the planet. And it was a weird realization a couple of years into this when I recognized that uh, I would never have all of my best friends even, the, the small few dozen people that I consider to be very, very close friends, I'd never have them all in the same place at the same time. And a lot of them would never meet. Like you, you try to arrange meetings yeah. when people go to different places. But in a lot of cases, it's unlikely that a bunch of these people would be together in the same place at the same yeah. time. And that does require a recalibration because if, if for you, what's most important about relationships or particular types of relationships is knowing that you're going to meet up for coffee or you go to the gym together or sit next to each other in class or whatever, this is not that. At least you can have that for periods of time. And because, I mean, and this is something that I found later on, I can be anywhere. That means I can go visit people and go revisit people wherever uh, they happen to be. Except for those periods, it's going to be essentially long distance relationships. And you have a girlfriend, yeah? I, I do. Think I saw. Yeah. And so yeah, I'm, I'm here with her in Ostia. She's the reason oh, that's that I'm amazing. Here. So how do you like, is she like you? Does she have kind of this vagabond lifestyle as well? To a degree. She's an actress, actually. She's an mm. actress and a writer. And so she's traveling to do shoots for TV shows and such. And then also she's able to write from wherever. Yeah. So we were actually able to meet up in person after chatting online for a bit for the first time because she was able to travel and come write where I happened to be while I was on tour, which was nice. Wow. So we, we kind of visit each other when we can. But then having finished up a speaking tour recently, I decided to come spend some in-person time <laughs> with her in London. And yeah. then she's doing a shoot right now here in Italy. So I, I've been tagging along with her as she does that, uh, and have, that on location stuff. 
I think that's so cool too. And and that that makes perfect sense to me too, that somebody that can kind of understand, you know, the lifestyle and not feel like it's an expiration dating kind of thing, you know, like it is, you know, do you, you've been at this for 10 years, you know, this is not really a passing phase, I don't think. No, you know, it, no, it's, it, it does. I, I will say it's something that's, that evolves over time. Yeah. I don't do things exactly the same way that I did 10 years ago. I took a couple of years ago, I took time uh, to spend time in the United States. There was a bunch of stuff happening culturally and politically that I didn't fully understand having been out of the country for so long. And I wanted to check that out. So I spent about a year apiece in uh, Wichita, Kansas, and then Memphis, Tennessee, two places Why that those I hadn't places? lived in before. They seemed very exotic to me compared to other places that I've lived in the U.S. I, I grew up in Missouri, and then I spent a lot of time in L.A., and most of the time in between traveling was in like hub-and-spoke areas with big airports, so like yeah. New York and Seattle. And so Wichita, Kansas seemed like a very educational, educationally valuable place to go for a completely different culture. And then I had my readers vote on what state I would go to next, and they voted for Tennessee, and I thought Memphis seemed like the most interesting city in the, the state of Tennessee. So I spent some time doing that. I've spent time traveling in different ways. I, I always had different travel adventures in between people voting for me to go places. And then I recently figured up a, or finished up a year-long tour, a speaking tour around North America, which was another permutation of the same. The, the first half of that, I bought and fixed up a vintage uh, motorhome. A 1985 Holiday oh, Rambler, uh, which was very educational. I, I didn't know it. I, I'd never like opened up the hood of my car so before, you fixed and it now. Up. Uh, me and my dad. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I went back to Missouri and uh, I did a bunch of research to figure out what I wanted. And uh, my dad and I and a friend of the family who actually like builds muscle cars came over. And so I learned about plumbing and doing electrical work and doing enough mechanical work to keep a 1985 motorhome going, which is no small task. Uh, and it was a blast. And, and that's another, in my mind, it represents the same type of thing as what I was doing before. It looks very different. It's not living out of just a bag and traveling yeah. internationally and having people vote, but it is traveling from place to place to place in a very uncomfortable circumstance. It's going just beyond what I'm comfortable with so that I'm always a little bit uncomfortable and pushing past my comfort zone and experiencing valuable frictions so that I, I have room to grow. And, and you know, that you get to fail a whole lot too which is a very valuable experience because it helps you remember just how much you don't know when you start to feel like you've got everything figured out. Yeah. So I was watching your TED Talks. You have four of them. That I think that's pretty cool too. <laughs> and and in one of them, you talked a lot about equilibrium and how important it is. You know, I think it was the one about extremes are easy, you mm. know, and that it's it's really easy to live on one extreme or the other, but the balance in the middle, the equilibrium is really what's important. And I thought, I wonder, do you ever feel like you are sliding back into a comfort zone of what other people know is comfort, you know, or, and catch yourself? Or do you feel like, you know, what, what is equilibrium to you? You know, like you just mentioned about, um, you know, building this RV and going just a little bit outside of your comfort zone to push yourself. So is mm -hmm. that your comfort zone to kind of learn and to be just enough, yeah, you know, where, I where you've got to stretch yourself? I, I think it's a moving target. I, so for me, actually, part of the reason I wanted to go to Wichita and then Memphis was that the scariest thing I could think of after traveling the world full-time, living out of a bag for seven years <laughs> straight, was going and having an apartment and getting mail every day and yeah. having a car and having car insurance and like all of the things that buying furniture 
terrified me because the last time I had bought furniture, I was 24. And at this point, I was 31. Like all of these things that are so normal become very abnormal. And and I find myself every time I swing out to something a little bit extreme, according to one spectrum of extreme. And with, with this, coming off of that speaking tour, which was another extreme for me because there was a lot of moving parts. I set it all up myself. Uh, that was a very interesting thing in terms of business model, in terms of, of having 50 different events over the course of a year, that sort of thing. Um, then returning to a sort of middle where I'm staying in one place, but I'm staying in one place. My girlfriend and I are living together. We're living together in London. We're trying something new in that regard. Like, so, so there's little changes and little variables in each and every case I find that adds that valuable friction. But I think in a lot of cases too, it's helpful to have something that, that is comfortable according to your standard or according to somebody else's standard. That can be educational as well because then you, you remind yourself that you don't need novelty and you don't need extremes and you don't need fast cars and roller coasters and yeah. to feel excitement. You can find yeah. excitement in everyday things. Like going to the grocery store can be very, a very interesting thing uh, <laughs> because it's a different type of rhythm. It's something like if you're learning to cook, like I've been doing over the past several years, you're discovering new aisles, like boring, boring everyday things. Yeah. There's, there's interest to find in that too. And I think it's good to have a little bit of all of these different uh, facets of life within your life. So one of the burning questions I had is that you belong to no address, you know, no permanent address. Do you feel like you're part of society or do you feel like you can be <laughs> sustainable all by yourself? You know, like you, like I, I'm, I'm reading through your, your essays and it's almost borderline poetry in a way oh, that you. you speak. Like you have a really beautiful way that you, uh, that your voice is, is poised and it, it is measured in a way, um, and I imagine it can be lonely. And I wonder, are you an introvert, an extrovert? Like, what? It, who are you? <laughs> you know, if you would have asked me in my LA days, I would have said an extrovert. But the more I've been able to, the more I've had the capacity to be alone, I realize that I definitely need battery recharging time. Yes. And I am perfectly capable of being completely alone and not seeing a soul for weeks and being great before I need to have some some input from external sources yeah. and some conversation. So probably like most of us, I'm somewhere in the middle. Um, but yeah, I, I do feel connected, which is really nice. We live in a time living in the future, the way that we do, we have so many different ways to interact and engage with other people, but also with ideas and then to do the same, put ourselves, but also our ideas and our work back out into the world. So I've got the same type of connection and connection anxiety is probably that a lot of people have trying to make sure that these things are balanced, trying to make sure that you don't have too much of one type of input, trying to make sure that you don't become a flatter individual because you're engaging in just one way. And then also trying to make sure that these relationships themselves don't flatten as a consequence of the communication methods that you're using. It's incredibly possible to engage only using emoji but at a certain point, that then also <laughs> flattens the number of ideas that you're able to communicate. Emoji are great for certain types of ideas yes. that you want to communicate. But at the same time, there's something quite different about sitting in person with somebody and having a conversation because of yeah. the body language, the nuance and voice and everything like that. Well, that's what I wonder, too, is that, it, you know, you're connected on social media. You've got your technology, you know. We, I, I especially suffer from FOMO. I think we all do in some case, especially because of Instagram and, you know, or, or Facebook, whatever it is. And I think one of the cool things is that you can, 
it, it inspires you to travel, you know, like you were posting about your time in Iceland, you know, and these mm. beautiful pictures or Niagara Falls. And, you know, like I might say, well, let's go visit. That looks beautiful. So do you feel FOMO? Like, do you feel FOMO of, <laughs> you know, of wanting to go to a new place or even just the ordinary of where you came from? I usually, I, I use social media really carefully and mm. intentionally at my best, but carefully I'm as a baseline. I'm listening um, very closely yeah, to this. <laughs> so I've got all of my notifications turned off all the time, phone calls, text messages, social media. I don't let my phone ping me. I do not let it tell me what to do. I, when I pick up my phone, I've got a very specific purpose. With social media, I tend to broadcast more than I... That's not entirely true. Certain, certain networks I broadcast more, like Instagram, I primarily use as a means of putting stuff out into the world to try to yeah. encourage people to want to go visit these places because I yeah. find in the US in particular, we're, we're not really encouraged to travel. And it, it's not because we don't want to necessarily. It's because there's so many other things to do. And, mm -hmm. and honestly, the US is such a big, rich, uh, mm -hmm. uh, completely many, many different distinct cultures in one milieu type of place that, oh, what's the point, right? Well, maybe I can inspire, put a little catalyst out there and get people to travel and then maybe they'll have an experience that is valuable. And I try to do that with all of the different connection points that I have. And then there's some that I use, like Twitter. Uh, I follow a bunch of journalists and scientists and experts in different fields. I get a lot of my inputs from different curators on that type of network. Um, Facebook, I avoid almost completely. I essentially, I have things that I post to Twitter auto-posting to Facebook so that yeah. I never have to open Facebook. Um, but each of them has its own purpose. Each of them is something that I find to be useful. And then I periodically check in with myself to make sure that's still the case. And if it's ever not, I drop it or I set up like an auto thing like I did with Facebook so that I can still send out stuff to people who are only on Facebook that might be valuable and interesting and, and a, a catalyst for something good. But I myself don't have to engage with it because it's just a drain. Yeah. So who are you at 34 different from when you were at 24? Like, is it different than <laughs> when you expected? Yeah. Literally. literally how has how traveling like this <laughs> changed you and engaging um, like this changed you? Gosh, where to even start? It's when I started traveling, I knew that there was tons I didn't know. The, the, original, yeah. the original title actually for Exile Lifestyle, and I changed it within the first week, was third education because I felt like I'd had my formal education and then I yeah. had like my business education. And I knew I had this other complete huge expanse of the world that I was missing out on because I'd never gone out of the country. I'd never done anything. Everything was fairly regimented and strict. And I had a guide, a guidebook to a certain degree of, of what to follow, even though it was still a somewhat unusual lifestyle within that, that path. Um, and and it, it's proved to be the case. There was just so much that I didn't even know I didn't know. And it's a constant series of humbling experiences that is incredibly valuable all into itself. But then you cannot help but see the world from different angles too, both, both geographically, but also just in terms of meeting other people and realizing that everybody has a different experience. They're brought up in different ways. They have different perceptions. Mm. We can look at the same thing and walk away with completely different ideas of what happened, not because one or the other of us is an idiot, but because we're just coming at it from completely different angles. Yeah. And recognizing that, it tends to slowly but surely three-dimensionalize your view of the world. You, you see sides of things that you didn't even realize might exist. And, and that has informed absolutely everything about who I am. In, is that how the of, podcast got started? So the podcast, the podcast is called Let's Know Things, right? So it is adding context to the news. Mm -hmm. um, but it's also kind of a poetic, 
way that you deliver that too? Do you feel that that's a manifestation of, of that, that evolution of, of your view of, of having so many different access to so many different perspectives? Yeah, it's, it's a huge part of it. In some ways, it's a continuation. In a past life, I did some journalism work and I wrote a news analysis column for first my high school and then my college and then kind of a local paper uh, explaining to people why they should care about what's happening in the news. Like, here's a thing mm-hmm. that's happening. Here's why you should care. Here's some details that you might not have gotten from the main articles from the headlines. And as an extension of that, this is essentially taking that same core idea and then, like you said, trying to look at things from different angles that you might not think to look at them from, trying to make connections between seemingly disconnected things Mm. to establish that context, and trying to do things that journalism does not do, not because it's not good, but because that's not the job of journalism. Uh, If if every single article on something that happened within economics went into a deep multi-century history of, you know, the Ming dynasty and how that connected to certain types of international relations and how that tied into the opium trade. And here we are changing our interest rates. Like we wouldn't have time to write about anything or understand (laughs) anything. But for me, I absolutely love geeking out about that stuff and Mm. trying to understand, um, there's a term for this, intertwingularity, the intertwingularity of how all information is connected to all other information and any differentiation, any distinctions or silos we create is just us trying to organize the world and trying to understand it, but it's false. Um, Archaeology is connected to computer science, is connected to the raising of interest rates. And if we look for these connections, we can understand each and every piece a little bit more thoroughly. So the, the idea behind the podcast to a certain degree is trying to establish that intertwingularity of the world and trying to help people feel more confident reading the news that this is something that actually matters, something that they're capable of understanding and something that's interesting uh, in its own right. I, I think that's, <laughs> I, I cannot understand how you're, you have access to the entire world, you know, and you have experience, you've immersed yourself in different cultures. You know, what is your mission? <laughs> is your mission, is your mission for the world or is your mission for your, your own journey, your own journey of the world? I think hopefully it's both. I mean, I, I am not somebody who believes in any specific type of destiny or purpose or hero's journey or, or manifest way that you have things have to mm-hmm. go. Um, and I find reassurance in that to a certain degree. But at the same time, I, I definitely uh, aspire to achieving the campsite rule, like trying to leave things better than I found them. Yeah. Whatever that happens to mean, the individual people or individual places, just bare minimum, trying not to do any harm. But ideally trying to leave things a little bit better. And that can mean so many different things. It's so many different targets that you can possibly hit. That's the broad-based thing that I aim for. And it just so happens, I mean, I I built things in such a way that I can aspire to do that while also trying to do things that I enjoy that fulfill me on an individual level. What is the most, what is your favorite way to pass time? Is it reading? Is it writing? Is it connecting? What is it? All all of it. (laughs) I like communicating. I like sitting and thinking in my own head, but I also like trying to express things, trying to understand things. I love being exposed to things that I didn't know existed. And that could be ideas, that could be people, that could be concepts. And you can achieve that through reading. You can achieve that through, I I spend a lot of my time here in Ostia uh, while my girlfriend's working. I'm just walking around and you never know what you're going to run into if you're walking around and paying attention. Just looking at the signage, trying to read things, trying yeah. to engage 
with people, taking your few dozen words that you learn very quickly using <laughs> Google Translate and trying to have. I can give you the curse words. <laughs> okay. I'm going to try not to pick that up. I'm sure I you probably drop. Them. Yeah. I'm sure you probably figured that out within five seconds of being there anyway. So do you move into places that are already furnished? I'm assuming you do. In in most cases, I did yeah. not in Wichita and Memphis because I wanted the experience of buying my own furniture to see what I liked because I've, I've gotten so very good at being in other people's space and renting. Yeah. Uh, when I lived in Romania, like I lived in the bottom floor of a castle and it was like all of this weird Soviet kitsch and just like old rationalist Soviet books and statues that were fairly disconcerting. But like it, I'm totally at home amongst that as in the same way I'm at home in like a super modern beach place or where I am now. It's like an Airbnb that's very nautically themed for some reason. Okay. Oars on the wall and yeah. a whole bookcase full of water and ocean related books. Um, totally at home wherever I end up, but I didn't know what I actually liked me myself if I had to furnish a place. So yeah. That experience. Oh, that's Most so of the time though, it is basically trying to go into a place, figure out trying to respect that place for what it is rather than coming in with preset expectations of what you want it to be. So when you, st- do, how do you get to these places? Do you take a pa- plane most of the time? Do you take a train there? Like what happens the moment you step off into a new country, a new experience? How do you feel? Is there any fear? Have you had scary experiences in certain countries? A few scary experiences, nothing substantial. The, a few that were definitely a bit scary in the moment, attempted muggings and things like that. Yeah. But got got pretty lucky in, in those regards and no injury. Um, dengue fever when I was in Thailand, that was pretty scary. But it was only mm-hmm. scary afterward because I, I was essentially just hallucinating for 72 hours. And, um, <laughs> was that yeah, fun? You know, I, no, no. <laughs> I wasn't fully aware during, but afterwards right. it was definitely not fun. Yeah. Um, th- things like that. But but in, in terms of transition, when I can, I try to travel overland. Um, and partially sustainability wise, but partially too, I just like the the spaces in between places, the the areas in between cities. If you're mm. in a plane, sometimes that's the best way to get from point A to point B. But if you can stare out the window and see the small towns and see the non-towns in between those locations, there's so much there that you wouldn't otherwise know to even ask about or think about. And I love those types of spaces. I go out of my way to try to get out of big cities and go into smaller towns when I can. So when the option is available, I will almost always take a train or a bus or a car or a taxi or whatever I can rather than a plane. Um, practicality wise, sometimes the only real option is a plane though. Yeah. And, and as soon as I arrive in either case, I, I try to establish location. In some cases, I'll show up without a place to stay. So I'll try to find a place to stay. That's my first mission. Once I find a place to stay, then I wander around and try to learn my neighborhood and just try to establish myself in that place. So how do you make money? I write books. You write books. The books have been my full-time job since 2010. I did consulting for the first year on the branding stuff, the first year that I was on the road. Uh, And these days, the podcast has become kind of a fun little side hustle. It's not lifestyle money, but it's like rent money, uh, yeah. which is nice for something that I, I didn't think anybody would listen. So it's, it's really nice that it's gotten <laughs> to that point and I've been able to do it without doing advertising, which was something that was pretty important to me. And, and I'm wondering, do you feel, uh, this is probably the crux to all of this. If you have the ability to earn enough money to be able to continue this lifestyle, something that is nourishing to you and doing what you love to do, love to put out into the world, 
do you feel the same hustle or the same freak out of like, oh shit, I need to, you know, do something else. I need to make money now, or I might be low on funds, you know, like, do you, do you have, um, do you have a desire to travel in luxury or live in luxury or is it just kind of whatever, you know, is that even important to you? So luxury to me is actually having the time to do what I want to do. Like time to me is the most intense luxury. And so I live on less than my rent, far less than my rent used to be in LA. Like that's all my expenses every single month is gosh, probably like a fourth of what my rent was in LA. Yeah. Um, Yeah. So Fortunately, I don't have to worry over much. I'm careful with money. I don't spend a lot to begin with because most of what I enjoy doing does not require anything. Um, I'm not into yet like yacht racing or anything expensive <laughs> like that. I know some people who have much more stringent and expensive tastes. They would have to probably, if they were doing what I was doing, they'd have to worry more about it. Yeah. For me, I mean, I've got books. I've got places to explore. I get to do the work that I enjoy. I get to be around people that I care about. And so that means that typically um, I can afford to get things that I need to get. If I need to replace my computer, I can do it. If I need to get a plane ticket, I can. And I have enough extra to put away just in case. So um, fortunately, it's not something I have to worry about over much. Now, it could change at any point. That's true with any type of freelancing, any type of non-paycheck job, and increasingly any type of paycheck-related job too, because it's something you don't have control over. And all you can really do is just try to keep in mind that you do have control over your expenses. And then along the way, trying to figure out, trying to figure out non-intrusive ways to introduce new income streams, things that you can, that are aligned with your morality, that do not ruin the type of work that you're trying to do. And something that, that makes sense for the work that you're doing too. I I don't feel bad about selling books. I feel fantastic that people on Patreon uh, Patreon are willing to give me money for a podcast that I put out for free. They're enjoying it enough that they're willing to do that. That is so... That is so incredibly heartwarming to me, yeah. but it's also something that I'm glad I introduced because it's one more barrier between me and something going wrong and me having to make some difficult decisions in that regard. So yeah. if you can in- introduce little things like that along the way, just a, a bunch of little tiny income streams, there's a chance that some might grow into something bigger. There's a chance that some of them won't, and that's totally okay. But as long as you can make it all balance out and spend less than you bring in, whatever that number happens to be, uh, you're in a pretty good spot. Yeah. Do you have aspirations to start a family at some point and will everything change or, or is this the life, the kind of nomadic lifestyle that can be sustainable for a family too? I, I actually don't want to have kids and, mm. and neither does my girlfriend. So that's, that's just something that neither one of us is into. We yeah. were very much, we both have siblings. My siblings are all planning. I've got three siblings all on the kid track. Yeah. She has siblings. One of them already has kids. Um, so we, we plan on being the, the aunt and uncle who yeah. <laughs> take our siblings' kids overseas and right. teach them the ropes and and do the things. It's nice to have that person who can take the time to do it. And that to me is pretty important to me, being yeah. there for my family and whatever they happen to need. And it just so, it, kind of like with the work thing, it happens to align with what I want to do for myself, but it's also something that then can hopefully add value to other people. That is um, so I, cool too. It's perfect. Yeah, yeah it, it works pretty well. Um, but that said, I know people who do things that are similar to what I do, who do have families. And yeah. They enjoy it. They a lot of them will homeschool on the road, or they'll go to a location and then stay there for a school year, and then travel to a new place. And a lot of the kids who grow up on the road in that way are just so with it. They, I bet. They seen, I bet they are so ahead of the game. I mean, there's pros and cons to anything, obviously, but uh, doing it intentionally 
making sure you know why you're doing what you're doing and making sure that you keep your family and their needs right up there with yours. Yeah. Uh, if you can do that, you can usually set something up that will fit everybody's ambitions and needs. I was reading about um, minimalists and I found some website, I don't know how accurate it is, but they, they interviewed 2,900 people and 65% of them had zero interest in becoming a minimalist of um, in any capacity, but there were, you know, there were 35% that were trying to live that life and 10% of those people are. So what that tells me, and even just the following that you have and the people that did the minimal, um, minimalism movie, you know, you guys have huge followings. It sounds like there is a, a almost a counterculture of people is it can be a movement, you know, do you stay connected with that? Is that, is that your experience? I think that's true. I, I think there is within that that pseudo movement too. kind of the we're all a little bit concerned because I think like with anything that has a label and a tribe at a certain point, it gets big enough that people join because they want to have the label or the tribe or the thing yeah. that it's associated with. Interesting. And then they have a, a an incorrect idea of what that means. Like it, yeah. I, I've met people who assume uh, that Josh and Ryan, uh, the guys who made the minimalist movie, that minimalism movie, um, that we sit around and talk about minimalism all day. And, and actually like when we get together, we never talk because minimalism is the way to get to the other stuff. Minimalism is like, you know, it's the, the diet that you do. So you feel healthier. And then you talk about all the stuff that you're doing with that new health. It's not the thing that you sit around and fixate on. And I think, unfortunately, something that comes with popularity is, is misunderstanding. And then there's like the Instagramification of everything, too, yeah. where to a lot of people, minimalism means very expensive Scandinavian designed furniture and stark white walls. And that's what it means to be a minimalist. And you have to own yeah. very, very few things, but also be incredibly wealthy because you got to own those very nice devices and things. Yeah. It's not the case, but I mean, if, if all you encounter is hashtag minimalism. And that's all you see are, are these very extreme examples of things or these very consumption-based examples of things. Mm. It creates a misperception. So there's a pro to that in that more people are hearing about this type of thing and more people are at least receptive to the concept and willing yeah. to hear you out and hear that it's not a dogmatic cult. Uh, but on the other hand, the people who engage with it more superficially are also more likely to encounter that unfortunately incorrect and even counter to the, the whole purpose version of things. Yeah. And I, I'm wondering this, I ask this of anybody who travels um, anywhere or has spent some time in a different country and you have had the luxury of spending time in a lot of different countries and, and have had exposure to a lot of different cultures. If you were to take some of the best practices or the best um, things that are embedded in different cultures, what do you think, what do you know that that you wish we could know? Like what cultures just have it right? I don't think any culture has everything figured out. And, and I would actually, so before I started traveling, I, I was far more critical of the US than I am now because there's certain things that the US does great. Um, certain things that, that we've got, in my opinion, that we do better than any other place on the planet. It's just that literally every other country I've been to as well does something way better and perhaps many somethings way better than yeah. us as well. One of the big ones, um, Healthcare, uh, not trying to get political about it, but healthcare, whatever that might look like, the fact that people don't have to worry about going bankrupt if something goes wrong in so many different countries. It, yeah. It's astounding to me when I go home and I pay a fortune for really terrible insurance that gives me barely anything and they get it as part of their taxes. Same with mass transit, the, the ability to not own a mm. car and to be able to get places and the benefits in terms of ecological benefits, but also economic benefits 
of uh, being able to tie communities together in this way and keep things human scale rather than car scale. It's, it's not something that the U.S. did because we're hateful and hate buses and trains. And it's just that our country was built at the age of the automobile. And so we yeah. built a lot of our cities to be car scale rather than human scale. Whereas you go to Europe and everything there was built for people walking and horses and carriages. So it was, they have the right bones for things like mass transit. But I, I do think it's something that we could do a lot better. And I find almost always when I'm in a city of equal size to a city that I like in the U.S., the thing that differentiates it uh, differentiates it from that U.S. city, these overseas cities, is the mass transit and how lovely it is to be able to just walk out your door and hop on a train or a bus and have it actually take you places. Yeah. Do you have a car in any of these or do you generally just take mass transit? I, I, you know, I actually own a car in the U.S. right now because I did my... my <laughs> is it a camper? Uh, no, it, it <laughs> was. I sold, selling I sold it. I sold that uh, when I was in Quartzsite, which is like a crazy RV capital of the U.S. It's, it's a bizarre place. If you ever get the chance to look up Quartzsite, Arizona, okay. it's really strange. Uh, sold it while there and then bought a Prius so that I could find, basically, I got like eight gallon or eight miles per gallon in, on a good day in the RV. So I wanted to try to counter that expenditure uh-huh. of resources for the rest of the trip. So do you so Airbnb this Prius? Prius? Do you Airbnb this if- <laughs> <laughs> while you're gone? That would be a good idea. I kind of wish I could. Uh, I, I left it with my family so that my parents have an additional car if they need it. But oh, mostly they're funny. hanging on to it so that when my girlfriend is done shooting this TV show that she's doing, we're going to go to the US and road trip, which is yeah. something that is better in the US than any other country I've been to. We've got an amazing highway system. Say what you will about it. It's, it's not perfect. But the fact that it goes everywhere and connects such a sprawling place, road tripping in the United States is second to none. Where are your places? Where are your favorite places that you've traveled? I I can make an argument for every single place I've been. That's my favorite for some reason. Um, New New Zealand is unfairly gorgeous. It's Mm. you just look out a window or you're driving and you look at a, a landscape. Every composition looks like a postcard. It just it looks like it was photoshopped. It's an unreal, epic sort of naturally beautiful place. Uh, I really loved Prague. I, it's one of the few cities that was not bombed to rubble during World War II. So it has original buildings, but then it was behind the Iron Curtain. So it's got these beautiful old school European buildings contrasting with this like brutal, uh, like uh, brutalist architecture that was brought in by the Soviets. So it's a really strange contrast. They've got some of the best Italian food, strangely, in the world, in Prague, in the Czech Republic, uh, because a bunch of Italian immigrants came up there at some point and settled down yeah. and opened up a bunch of restaurants. Uh, but, but really, I could, I could do that with every single place I've been, because every place does have something. And if you go in looking to judge a place by its own standards rather than the standards of someplace else, then you can't help but notice those types of things, I think. Where do you want to go? everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> have you been to, have you been to Antarctica? I haven't. I, I have a really weird pseudo adventure story about how I almost made it there by bribing a ship captain with green beer in the southernmost <laughs> city in the world, other than Antarctica and other than Antarctica, which is located in Argentina, a place called Ushuaia. But I didn't make it because a, a bunch of Israeli uh, soldiers coming fresh off soldier duty took the jobs before I did. Oh, that's amazing. I, I don't know why I'm fascinated by Antarctica of all places. <laughs> just You got to get there before it melts. I mean, honestly, it, it is, it's a fascinating <laughs> place. It's a difficult place to go to because you can go there with a tour group, but you can only see certain parts of it. But then certain governments uh, have their own bases there. And those governments are in some cases outsourced, like the U.S. government has it outsourced. Yeah. 
I think it was Raytheon and then it's another company. But you can actually apply for certain grants, creative grants. If you're a United States citizen, for instance, you can apply for a grant and say, I am doing this artwork. I'm writing a book of poetry about Antarctica that can only be finished if I go there and apply for a grant. And then six to eight months later, I think it is, they might give you a grant to stay there. And you have to pay your own way and pay for your own food but you will get leave to go stay at one of these research bases there. So so I've been looking into those options for a while. They've never quite fit with my schedule, but hopefully someday because I'm I'm fascinated by it too. Yeah. And I'm, I'm wondering too, with the exposure that you have and the perspectives that you have, you have, you know, a, a modality of, of the podcast and writing. Have you ever felt like you're, mission should be in political change or any, you know, anything's on a broader, broader uh, scope based on your perspective and what you know? I, I tend to think, and this probably won't be any surprise based on what I said earlier about intertwingularity, that you can approach those types I'm of things. I'm totally going to look that up and see if it's a scroll word. I might have made it up. This guy, Ted Nelson, invented it. Uh, <laughs> okay. One of the guys who invented some of the technologies that led to the web. Yeah. Um, he he coined like 30 some odd words. And that was the only good one in my opinion. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, but but I, I tend to think that a lot of this stuff is connected and you can, you can attack. And usually it is attack tactically certain elements of people's ideology, be it political or otherwise. I don't think that's super productive always though. I think mm. there is a certain degree of productivity that you can have with that. It's not me. It's not something that I find I enjoy. I actually find that I enjoy engaging with people with whom I disagree with. But I also find that you can convince people of things that you think are important by coming in a different door as well. And rather than disagreeing or saying, I am right and you are wrong, or waving a certain tribal flag and trying to convince somebody cheering for the other team that they should come cheer for your team, which almost never works, you can actually go in and just say, hey, let's all just think more critically. Let's all parse the news that we're reading a little bit more critically. Let's all be more thoughtful. And then if you still come to a different conclusion, I totally respect that. But I think I tend to think with ideas that I have about certain ideologies and such, that they at least are worthy of consideration and people are more likely to consider them if they come to it without me trying to proselytize to them about it. Now, that's just for me. I think it is important that we have people who take a more direct approach with everything. But I also think that it's really important that we have bridge conversations. And I try to see what I do is enabling bridge conversations so that even if we end up disagreeing with each other about our tribal affiliations and ideological titles and everything else, we still have connection points that we can find. Yeah. Where do you find the people to be the most welcoming uh, in your experience? Honestly, like everywhere. It's been surprising. It sounds like you might have, that might be your lens. You know, you might be a very open, welcoming person. But I I think part of it too, I think part of the reason I feel that way is that I have had that experience every place I've gone, Mm. where if you go and engage with real people, as opposed to people who are like the the outward facing tourist Tourist, track, where everything is just, it's it's predicated on money. If you don't see the theme park version of a place that you go to and meet with real people, and even if you disagree with the government, you disagree with cultural mores, you disagree with everything, every single place I've been, I've had people who have gone out of their way. They would just give me the shirt off their back to make sure that I was safe, that I was okay, that I had a good time, that I knew where to go in the same way that I think most of us would. I I think most of us, given the opportunity, would do the same thing. And I've found maybe especially in the places that I was warned about, told it's rife with crime and everybody's very rude and they hate Americans and this and that. Maybe specifically those places have gone even further out of their way. And very likely that's just 
how they actually are, but it felt like they went even further out of their way yeah. to make that human connection. And I, and I think that's the case. Humans are humans wherever you go. 99.99999% of the people on the planet are good generally, it, just like you and me. It, you know, We're imperfect, but we're generally good. It's just the 0.0000001% of people who tend to be the Yeah, best. I agree with that. But I also probably think it's it's your lens too, that you, you <laughs> have a very- That might be part of it. You sound like you have very open arms as you as you kind of take on the world. What is next for you? I have no idea. I'm kind of, I'm, I'm figuring that out right now. I've got a few new projects that I'm working on, writing projects, um, newsletters of sort, kind of email blogs, one that is about perception called brain lenses. It's topics that I've been speaking about recently. Brain lenses. Explain what yeah. that is. Uh, different concepts, different variables that change and influence the way that we see the world and the the things that are the reason that two people can look at exactly the same thing happening and walk away with very different ideas of what you can occurred. I mean you can do that all day on the political climate, especially in America right now, or really globally. Yeah, you know, I, I I'd love to important. read that book. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And it was actually it was originally going to be a book. And now I'm going to be sending them out essentially chapter by chapter each week mm. in a newsletter format. Uh, and then another one that's kind of a, a I mean, for lack of a better explanation, an advice column about life. I, I spend probably 20 or 30 minutes a day answering emails from people just on all kinds of topics. And so I decided finally to post some of the answers to some of these questions that people ask and make it kind of an advice column about everything from publishing to traveling to running a business yeah. to relationships to anything that I think I can provide something on, something not dumb. Uh, I try to answer those publicly. And then, and then the ones that <laughs> wait, I cannot what kind do of, that. Wait, go back to the dumb thing. Who's asking you <laughs> dumb questions? What, what no, is no, the dumb it, question? Where, where my answer would be dumb, oh. <laughs> where I have nothing to offer, where I would only actually diminish their knowledge by answering. Right. I try to avoid those. Um, I'll send back a, sorry, I, I don't know enough about that to comment. But, but anything else, if I feel like I might have even just a new perspective if not, yeah. then I try to offer that. So this is kind of a, an emo question, but you know, you have people that are asking you questions. You have people probably all over the world that are kind of following you and supporting you. You know, what do you think is the common modality, uh, not modality? What is the common question or the common thing that people want to know? What are people looking to you for? Oh, a lot of things. I, Something that I do find, though, and it's not across all of them, not not uniformly at least, but something sure. that I find is fairly consistent is people looking for the right words at the right time. And in a lot of cases, it's people who are struggling with something or thinking about doing something, but because of their environment or because of the conversations that they've had or something that's happened to them at some point in their lives, they're not feeling confident or comfortable about it. And if bare minimum, I can be the person who writes back and says, that sounds cool. Congratulations on thinking about that. I hope you do it. If you need any help, let me know. If I if I can tell you anything, I'll do it. Just to be a, like a cheerleader for for people who are thinking about doing things or going through something, yeah. or trying to offer connections or, or resources. Just that little thing, you can be the right right person with the right words at the right time. And I think that is probably the most valuable. I mean, every once in a while, I'll get to offer really precise tactical stuff, things that I know a great deal about. 80% of the time, it's me just cheerleading and being yeah. excited for people and, and oh, genuinely great. being excited, but then just writing back. Uh, I, I was fortunate to have a few people do that for me when I started out. And if I can do that same thing for other people, that is worth the time uh, in my mind. 
I wonder if, if you being kind of, again, the catch me if you can kind of thing of just here, <laughs> like you get to ultimately be the good guy. Like I, I think it's funny, you know, before I married my husband, you know, I was never angry <laughs> because I never had anybody to be angry at, you know? And so I had to like chill myself out when I, uh, when I settled down and got married. And I wonder if, you know, you really do have a great perspective to kind of always be in a, in a great, uh, a state of grace, you know, for other people, you know, I, I, I hope so. I try to, uh, the way I tend to think of it, it's almost like I tend to think that the more money you have, the more responsibility to a certain degree that you have, you, you yeah. don't have to, but the more responsibility that you have then to maybe use those resources in a way that improves things. I don't have tons of money, but I do have more time than most people. And I do have yeah. the opportunity to see more things. And if I can take some of that and leverage it and plant seeds, you know, put stuff a little bit out into the world. And, and again, camp, campsite rule, try to make things a little bit better than I found them. Yeah. Um, little by little, that to me is worth the effort. And it's something that's very much in alignment with my ideology, but also something that, that I enjoy. I, I like seeing other people succeed and try. And it's, it is heartening and humbling that, that people take the time to even reach out to me in the first place and say hello. Have people been inspired to kind of follow your lead? That that's got to be insane. I, I think to varying degrees, yeah, yeah, yeah. With, with a lot of really random, weird stuff. Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, just all kinds of random, small adventures and projects. And 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 fortunately, and this is something I try to tell people: most people would not be happy doing what I'm doing. Specifically, like this is a very me-shaped type of project and yeah. lifestyle. So, luckily, most people take the stuff that makes sense and build their own a la carte lifestyle, something that fits them, and and. That's exciting for me too, because then I get to see a new permutation of a weird yeah. lifestyle that fits somebody else perfectly. Yeah. So how do people find you? Oh, kind of from all over the place, I think. Some people will read a blog or get an email or see something on social media. Um, what, what's really interesting, and this has been just the last couple of years because I've been running the podcast for three years, a little over three years, is that some people only know the podcast. And so as far as they know, I'm just like a news commentator, which is cool because that's a side of me too, is sitting around and talking about stuff that I think is important. Uh, and then they'll, they'll like stumble upon something else and see, oh, this dude also travels for some reason and maybe you know, owns very few things. That's weird. I'm just going to focus on the podcast. <laughs> so there's different people who, who focus on different aspects of, of my work, which honestly is perfect for me because they're all, <clears throat> all different things that I care about. And it's nice to have those different types of conversations with people. So where, what is the best way for somebody to contact you? Oh, email works pretty well. Uh, Colin at exilelifestyle.com, but uh, Twitter or Instagram at Colin is my name. Is, not is Facebook. My, <laughs> no, probably not Facebook. You can try and I check it every couple of months, but I probably won't get back to you anytime soon. Sorry about it's, that. It's so funny how, um, how these social media sites, and you probably know, you know, 10 years running, of the evolution of those things too. And I have to say, before we close out, I'm sure you probably get this a lot. I get the Ethan Hawke vibe so hard from you. Do you get that? <laughs> Do people tell you that? I don't see it. I've heard that before. Yes. Um, I'll, I'll take it. I, I like Ethan Hawke, so I appreciate <laughs> I, it. I'm a 90s gal. I've always been an Ethan Hawke fan. And, and it's because he's kind of artsy and a poet as well. So it, uh, oh, and he I did get Before Sunrise hard. and Before Sunset. So that's You know what's funny? It's, it's interesting that when I was thinking and preparing for this, I was thinking about Before Sunset and Before Sunrise, which I love like indie art. I love Ethan Hawke and that whole kind of thing. 
And as I like, if I imagine you, I'm imagining that the like traveling through Europe. I know that's <laughs> something you did by train. You that's know, very so. flattering. I, I love those movies, so I appreciate that. <laughs> I think it was a brilliantly done movie, but. Colin Wright, I can't thank you enough for your time for uh, broadcasting out of Italy um, for me and, and and talking more about your life. I could probably sit down and talk to you forever, but um, but that would just be disrespectful of everyone. Time. <laughs> Next time I'm in Atlanta, we'll, we'll continue. Well, I can't wait to follow your journey online. Um, happy to support you any way I can, but I can't thank you enough for being part of the conversation today. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you, Colin. What would it be like to live an exile lifestyle? After this episode, I'm definitely planning to Marie Kondo my place and invite some clarity and intention. Colin Wright, I'm so thankful for you sharing your experience and giving us so much to think about. I've linked his info in the show notes, and you can also watch the video version on YouTube. As for Little Left of Center, in addition to streaming on your favorite podcast app, these episodes are also broadcasting on Decatur FM and Salesforce Radio. If you haven't hit subscribe yet, please make sure you do so you never miss an episode of these perspective-shifting episodes. Take a moment and leave a five-star review. Share it with your friends and enemies. Passing these episodes along is the highest compliment you can pay me as it tells me these topics are resonating. Thank you so much for listening, and I will see you next week.